Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with Omicron taking over in Ontario, Premier Doug Ford announced new measures yesterday that bring back some restrictions, along with speeding up the booster shot eligibility. What makes Omicron different from other variants? Well, we'll discuss that. Ontario's housing summit has been postponed as the government focuses on Omicron, but the issue of affordability is not going away. We'll talk about what needs to be addressed. Canada has uh, reimposed the advisory on non-essential international travel. And Karina Gold, the MP for Burlington, Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, joins us with the latest update on childcare deal here in Ontario. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Kind of double-barreled action yesterday when it came to COVID-19 and the uh, the new variant that we're dealing with. Uh, the federal government making an announcement that they are uh, strongly suggesting that there be no international travel uh, for the next little while. And here in Ontario, Premier Doug Ford has come up with some uh, new recommendations and a new twist to the plan. And uh, with the Omicron variant taking hold in Ontario, uh, Premier Ford held a press conference yesterday to announce some new measures. Global's Dave Woodard has some details. Well, ICU admissions currently remain stable. We do expect those numbers to rise in the coming weeks. So Premier Ford is calling on Ontarians to do more to help stem the spread of the virus, which includes getting a booster. Nothing matters more than getting these third shots into arms. To that end, eligibility has moved up. Anyone 18 years or older with a three-month interval from the last dose will be able to get a booster as of Monday. Premier Ford says they've also begun sending rapid tests to pop-up testing sites and will distribute them to LCBOs in the coming weeks as well. The province is also going to limit capacity for any indoor venue over 1,000 people to 50%, which includes sporting events like Leaf Games and concerts. Dave Woodard, Global News. So what does this all mean? And, well, I guess the overriding question is how effective is this going to be? To talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Santia Golemi-Kotra, who is a microbiologist at York University. Uh, doctor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, very instructive piece, by the way, that uh, that you authored uh, that appeared in uh, theconversation.com. Uh, that uh, I think addresses an awful lot of the questions that we've got and, and, and tries to give some perspective on exactly what it is we're dealing with with Omicron, uh, about how different it is from from some of the other variants that we've had and, and just the, the plan of attack, I guess, to try to deal with this. Uh, and maybe we should begin with that, and I'll talk about the, the government plan and get your read on that in just a couple of seconds. What do we know about this this variant so far? I mean, we're hearing all sorts of different things that it's uh, it's more transmissible, uh, and and there's some concern about just how dangerous it can be right now. What what have we learned at, at, at this stage, Doctor? Yes, um, thank you actually for opening with this uh, in terms of providing a little bit of a, uh, info on the Omicron itself. So it emerged mm -hmm. um, um, quite early, it seems like in early November in uh, uh, southern uh, Africa. And it uh, spread quite quickly. And the reason I, I mention that again is just to give a sense that uh, it's not just uh, sort of uh, we hearing about it, but indeed actually uh, it spread very quickly. Uh, and and an early indication that it was very infectious and very tra transmissible. Uh, the uh, variant itself has gathered, accumulated a number of mutations on a key protein that provides uh, the virus access with uh, uh, to our, our cells in the lungs and other parts of the body. 
And in addition, um, it seems like um, it's no match for the immunity uh, that is gained either through prior infections or through the vaccines. And that's the most troubling one because it is actually fueling its transmiss transmissibility as well. Uh, it spread quickly uh, uh, from the uh, day that uh, the variant was reported in, in uh, WHO, November 24th, quickly uh, was uh, noted and uh, detected in other uh, countries in, in Europe, primarily uh, travel-related. And now we see, for example, in, in UK, a number of cases are hitting or predicted to hit about uh, 200,000 cases per day. So that's, that's a, a quite a speedy uh, uh, transmission of uh, these various and uh, this variant. Rather. Here in Canada, in Ontario for, in particular, we do see that speed of transmission quite clearly. Uh, early, uh, late last week, uh, the, um, uh, the number of uh, Omicron variants among the, those that were positively identified was 10%. Now it's by the end of the this week will be about 30%. So it's moving quite fast. Um, uh, there are a lot of studies, although a small size studies, but when you look at them all together, all of them seem to conclude that indeed the variant is able to evade uh, the vaccines uh, and the, the immunity gained by prior infections. Um, when it comes to severity, uh, people are, uh, the experts are, are remaining cautious. And the reason for that actually is that um, uh, there are not really uh, strong data to suggest either way, but because it's uh, transmitted so fast, even if the variant itself may be less virulent, less pathogenic, may not, meaning may not cause severe disease, it's just because the, the, the speed of transmission uh, may lead indeed to um, issues when it comes to uh, over, overwhelming the healthcare system. Let me back up if I could for just a second, doctor, because there's a you, you mentioned about uh, vaccines and and you know we know for instance here in Canada I think we're we're doing a reasonably good job now of getting double vaccinated. Right. We're not where we want to be, but we're, but we're doing a lot better than other parts of the world. If if you've had the double vaccine and, and either have already had the booster or are about to get the booster, hopefully in the next little while, if you mentioned that it may be resistant to that. Does that suggest that that the vaccines we've had are are not doing any good at all, or does does it just lessen the impact if, in fact, we should come in contact with this variant? Very good question, actually. So when it comes to um, the point of this variant evading the vaccines, the primary focus is in uh, uh, preventing the infections. The vaccines, mm -hmm. either the messenger RNA vaccines or the AstraZeneca vaccine, actually, uh, not only were good to prevent hospitalization, but they were shown to be quite effective in um, preventing the transmissions or lowering rather the uh, uh, level of transmissions. When it comes to this variant, um, that uh, uh, effectiveness in lowering the uh, transmission has has become as low as 30% from uh, as much as 70 to 80%. So, um, so that's sort of uh, uh, what the experts are trying to highlight by saying that it, it does, the variant evades uh, the vaccines, meaning that a vaccine uh, cannot prevent or lower down the, um, the infection or transmission of the virus or the disease. But just but, to put this sorry, in context, I, and, and I'm going to relate this to, to previous conversations, even with the Delta variant, uh, which we've been dealing with for the last little while, uh, there was never any guarantee that you were never going to get it if you got double vaccinated. If you're exposed to it, you could still test positive. Is that right? That's a very good uh, point. So when it comes to the Delta, indeed, there was uh, a, a decrease in the uh, effectiveness of the vaccines, but by no means to the level uh, that this variant uh, that we see 
on this variant. And again, I'm emphasizing here when it comes to particular infection, the vaccines were uh, highly efficient when it came to uh, hosp preventing hospitalization and severe cases uh, uh, above 90%. Uh, percent. When it comes to these variants, it, it seems like uh, uh, because the body is not able anymore to lower the um, viral load in the body, uh, that may actually lower a bit the uh, uh, effectiveness when it comes to preventing the hospitalizations. When it comes to the boosters, because this virus is able to evade these uh, neutralizing antibodies, what the boosters do actually, they increase the amount of neutralizing antibodies produced by the immune cells. And so they are able actually then to latch on the virus and prevent from accessing, accessing the cells. Which is why all of a sudden, there's, uh, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, but I mean, we seem to have ramped up uh, yeah. the, 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 the desire to get that third booster. In other words, that's, that's right. the shot that we need. That's, that's like the adrenaline shot, I guess, for the, for the vaccine, isn't it? Very nicely put, indeed, actually, very nicely put. Um, uh, when it came to the Delta, uh, two shots were uh, quite good enough, actually, to prevent hospitalization and uh, especially uh, deaths. When it comes to this uh, uh, variant, really, you need that booster shot to definitely uh, not only protect even more against uh, hospitalization, but also to uh, lower um, the 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 infections, but uh, the spread of the infection or and, and or the rate of transmissibility. Another question the Premier mentioned yesterday, and uh, I know that Dr. Uni is going to give the update uh, later on this morning from the, the science table uh, about projections about where we're going to go, but uh, the Premier yesterday said uh, hospitalizations are probably going to increase uh, no matter what, just because of the, the, mm -hmm. of the, the makeup of this uh, the, the variant that we're dealing with right now, the Omicron, is is that going to simply be because of volume, doctor, that so many people are going to be exposed to it? Or it, it sounds as if it may not be uh, as as deadly as, as some of the other variants, but just more people are going to be exposed to it, more people are going to be impacted by it. That's true, actually. Um, uh, because the early data do indicate that um, severity of the disease is not yet displayed by this variant. Um, and if indeed there was a big concern about severity, we should have seen it by now, especially in South Africa, because it emerged there quite early uh, in November. Mm -hmm. And we don't see it yet. But um, as you very nicely put it, just the sheer uh, volume of cases may indeed put uh, 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 overwhelm the healthcare system. And just to look at the numbers itself, let's say, for example, and I'm, I'm trying to be uh, conservative here, let's say that the, the, sure. um, uh, uh, the cases of hospitalization are like 0.1% of total people that get infected. But let's say that out of 17 million that we are here in Ontario, only 0.1% get infected. But that translates to 17,000 hospitalization. Right, right now um, uh, there are about 350 or so um, people in hospitals and about 150 in uh, uh, an ICU. So that quickly, 17,000 people, and it only represents 0.1% of those that uh, get infected. Um, it's a huge number to deal with, considering that the yeah. healthcare system is really, really strained, very thin, and I don't really know how they do it. I've have been in an emergency uh, uh, room, uh, not personally, but for a friend of a family friend. And these nurses are working 12 hours nonstop. 
It's it's amazing, and and I know we tend to have maybe lost sight of that simply because we figured we seem to be over the worst, and and clearly the the, mm-hmm. the data you've just imparted to us here indicates that we're not. With all this in mind, and the work that you and your colleagues have done on this so far, Doctor, when you heard the announcement yesterday about ramping up the the booster vaccines, and and all of a sudden making a rapid testing free for people. Uh, is this the right strategy? Do you feel this is, are you comfortable that this is the best way to address what's happening here now? With the tools that we have available, um, uh, including the ones that you just mentioned, actually, um, that's the best uh, course of, uh, that can be taken to really um, uh, change the trajectory of, uh, of this uh, variant. But by all means, um, they won't be perfect because it's just just the way they uh, the logistics involved with uh, administering all these booster shots. I mean, ensuring that 17 uh, or less than, let's say, 10 10 million uh, people in Ontario will get the booster shots in a matter of weeks. It's it's a it's a daunting task, no matter how uh, efficient we are. Yeah. I mean, getting all those nurses to put those uh, vaccines on, on our arms, and in addition, the same thing when it comes to the um, uh, the rapid test. Uh, delivering those, but also making sure that people use them properly and at the right time, uh, it's a daunting task as well. So they are not, uh, they may not necessarily be perfect each and every one, but having all these layers, not only the boosters, not only the rapid test, but also um, making sure that which we have it in place, luckily in Ontario, and which has done us quite served us quite well, face masking indoors and especially uh, uh, gatherings outdoors, but also um, limiting those gatherings. There is so much the government can do, but we have to ourselves have to be responsible as well. Let's use common sense. I mean, uh, uh, the news is that this variant is spreads very readily. Uh, just yesterday, our um, chief medical officer mentioned that uh, the um, the Omicron variant can infect four to eight more people than Delta. I mean, we dealt with yeah. Delta, <laughs> and we saw how rapid it spread. It was just a few months ago. Now this one is four to eight times more uh, transmissible than Delta. So it's 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 a ferocious uh, variant. So let's be um, responsible. Let's use common sense. Let's avoid the gatherings. I know this is a second Christmas and I'm a patient person, but yes, I, I can see myself sort of reaching <laughs> that end. But at the same time, you know, who wants to let, let the sort of so-called the, the survival of the fitness run its course? I mean, in the sense that, you know, um, those that are more vulnerable, if they are not protected, those, those will be the ones to uh, be affected. So let's just play as much role as we can. And all these measures, non-perfect though, but all together are sort of layers that really will make a a difference when it comes to the impact that this variant may have in Canada and here in Ontario. Well, especially as as you've just alluded. I mean, if if, if in fact you have plans to get together as a family over holidays, uh, chances of somebody with some immune problem or some pre-existing condition may be at that family gathering. Uh, the variant may not bother you, but it, in fact could you know, have serious consequences for them. I guess we, a little common sense, I guess, doctor, seems to be the overriding uh, theme here. Uh, I want to direct mm-hmm. our, our, our listeners again, uh, go to theconversation.com. The, uh, the piece is called Omicron. Uh, how is it different from other variants? It's a super variant, et cetera. And uh, doctor, I thank you for the great work you've done on this and the piece that was in the uh, the conversation. And thanks for spending some time with us. So a lot of questions I think we all have, and I think you've done a great job of addressing a lot of those concerns. Thank you very much for having me and great questions. Thank you so much. Dr. Santia Golemi-Kotra, who is a microbiologist at York University. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about real estate. Let's talk about affordability. The uh, Canadian Real Estate Association uh, is reporting that home sales across the country actually edged up in November from October. That's a dramatic difference uh, from the increase that they actually had in October. But compared to a year ago, home sales were actually slightly lower, uh, but that didn't do a whole lot about pricing. Uh, Global's Ann Gaviola has some of the details for us. Royal LePage's housing market forecast predicts a 10.5% jump in home prices by the end of 2022. The hottest markets, Toronto, Vancouver, and Halifax. Now, the condo comeback in major urban centres will be a continuing trend as newcomers, students, both domestic and foreign, and investors snap them up, especially in the greater Toronto area. Royal LePage CEO Phil Soper tells Global News Omicron and related restrictions will continue to drive interest in housing. Many of our homes have become our office, school, gym and restaurants. But higher interest rates in the second half of 2022 are expected to have a much needed cooling effect on the market. Anne Gaviola, Global News. So the government's certainly aware of this and and they have uh, struck a task force to try to deal with some of these things. Uh, the Housing Affordability Task Force, uh, you know, Tim Hudak's been on this show many times, of course, the Realtors Association. Uh, Tim is a member of this task force. They actually were supposed to have a, a summit today. Uh, that's been delayed by the Ontario government simply because of the, well, the crisis situation we're facing right now with with Omicron. But uh, they are going to get together and uh, the summit will take place early into the new year. But uh, to get some perspective on what's going on, what we can hope to see from this committee and maybe to find some solutions to this, uh, please to welcome to the program, Kevin Krigger. Kevin is the president of the Toronto Region Real Estate Board. Uh, Kevin, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much today. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. We've been waiting uh, for some action on this. Uh, I've, governments at all levels, I guess, have at one point or another, Kevin, taken a kick at the can as to what they can do about this. They've tried to impose some taxes. They say, ah, oh, it's foreign investment that's causing this. Uh, etc. Nothing seems to be working here right now. The, the problem is getting worse, if not uh, in, in the, to come to affordability, but even about availability. So this is like a two-headed monster that we're dealing with. What do you see happening here, and, and what role do you see this, this, this committee playing to try to find some solutions? Well, I think first speaking to the committee, it definitely represents a very broad base of some incredibly, incredibly bright people. Um, so I think from that perspective, we will certainly get a range of recommendations that are probably far-reaching and also are, are probably quite innovative in their approach. The biggest challenge to date really is supply. And, you know, the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board for the last decade um, has been crying concerns about supply, and they've largely fallen on deaf ears. Um, looking at the current situation, it's obviously not the fault of you know, one person or one party, but it's really the cumulative effect of government inaction on supply. When it comes to housing, most of the policies we've seen looking at, you know, the foreign buyer tax and the fair housing plan um, brought in by the wind government, everything really is focused on sort of a punitive approach to suppressing demand, mm-hmm. um, which is, is also artificial. So looking at sort of tax opportunities, there's been virtually nothing done to bolster supply. And I think really the first big broad-based conversation about supply finally occurred at, of all places, the federal level um, during the federal election. Now, obviously the federal government being the most removed from where supply actually comes online, being at the local level, 
there's going to have to be a lot of coordinated effort between municipalities and, and to some degree, the provincial government as well. Um, but it's certainly very positive to see that this is now a national conversation in a, a very, very big way. Uh, it's and it's it's more from a conversation to a, an outright debate, I guess, in some municipalities. Yes. Uh, Hamilton being one of them, of course, over the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, it was characterized by some as okay. It's not a matter of if we're going to grow; it's how we're going to grow. Uh, but you could add on to that: where are we going to grow? Uh, I know that there's a debate going on in Calgary right now about urban boundaries and where you know the, the supply of housing, if in fact we're going to go that way, and I think we should, uh, mm-hmm. is going to be happening. Uh, what are the chances of finding some consensus on this, Kevin? I mean, you've heard what's going on in Toronto with the the argument there with that council about where they should grow, et cetera. It's a bit of a different situation than Hamilton, or is it really? I mean, if as you said, this is this is economics one hundred and one. If you don't have the, the the supply, the demand is going to go up and prices are going to go up. I mean, that's that's that, that's irrefutable, isn't it? In my mind, it is. Um, certainly, from a, a supply and demand perspective, you know, the fundamentals of that equation don't change. What I think does change in sort of a local context, the type of growth that Hamilton will want and the way in which Hamilton will grow, I think is very different than certainly other cities, Toronto being one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think the key really is stopping the conversation around whether growth is necessary. Growth is going to happen. It has to. Um, We have, population that's increasing. We're going to see the highest level of immigration we've seen, obviously, in quite some time. We'll be at near record levels um, based on all of the sort of um, uh, government policies on a move forward basis. So looking at that, it's not a question of if each municipality is going to see growth. It's sort of where and how. So, you know, looking at short-term opportunities in places like Toronto, for example, the easiest and fastest type of density to bring to market is infill or conversion of existing housing stock. So looking at, you know, the opportunity for plexes, so multiplexes, um, conversion of some single family homes to duplex, triplex, and then looking at, you know, townhouse opportunities, sort of more gentle intensification. Here's the problem, and you've been in the business long enough. I'm sure you've seen this, and, and we've certainly heard about it in, in this community and in London where my, my daughter went to school. I, I got to know an awful lot about that community over that period of time as well. Is On paper and philosophically, what you've said makes all kinds of sense. Uh, you know, let's let's look at conversions into triplexes and things of this nature. That's you know, But every time somebody comes forward, almost to a, without fault, come to a council or a committee or a planning committee meeting and says, this is what I want to do. This pushback from the neighborhoods. They say, I want that here. I, it, that may be the right thing to do, but not in my neighborhood you don't. And as a result, it gets stalled. In some cases, it gets canceled, and we're, we're right back to square one again. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And this is where I think part of the process really is going to be depoliticizing housing. Yeah. If you look at the sort of nimbyism that exists and – you know, the the amount of density that NIMBYism has taken out of every market, um, you know, condo buildings that are existing that now look puny in comparison to some of the larger towers that have gone in in the same sort of neighborhood, um, you know, they became smaller because people were concerned they're going to be too tall. 
the reality is once that building is built, there's no additional opportunity for density. So yep. any sort of density that didn't happen on that particular site is arguably never going to happen. So that's also where it's looking at, you know, where true density opportunities are possible. Uh, looking at as of right zoning for multiplex, for example, in certain areas of the city or, or across the city. Um, but I think governments are going to have to sit down and take a hard look at how they create a process that is much more streamlined, takes away a lot of the question marks for you know individual homeowners in terms of what the opportunities they have to you know improve their property, create income opportunities for their property as they get older, um, or you know create housing units in something that's being underutilized. But I, I think as long as the political system is such that it is, and politicians have to sort of pander to the public, you're going to see, again, very slow growth in any sort of supply conversation. And I would say that whole politicized process is one of the reasons we are where we are today. It's going to take political courage to do this, political will. And and uh, and uh, to your point, a lot of it's going to have to happen at the municipal level because that's where an awful lot of this actually happens. We know when it comes to zoning, when it comes to planning, uh, and giving okays for building permits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's 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 all on city councils around the uh, the province, and and they they're going to have to understand that. Yeah, there's going to be some pushback, but if it's the thing that needs to be done, then they're going to have to stand strong, and they don't always do that. Uh, we're, all, we're saying all this right now. I know the guys that there's going to be a municipal election less than a year from now. Uh, and everybody who's worried about re-election is going to say, yeah, well, maybe after the election we'll have that debate, but not now. <laughs> uh, but which, which is not unusual, I guess, either, Kevin. But the reality here is that the reason this committee was formed and, and the reason that we're looking, I think, at this right now is because we need action now. We can't keep kicking this thing down the road because it's only getting worse. I completely agree. And and I think definitely the understanding is that, you know, the, this really is equating to a crisis. And there are certainly steps that can be taken very quickly, very decisively, and very much now. But in addition to the here and now, we definitely, definitely need a longer term view. And that's really what's been look that's what has been lacking from any housing policy in the last decade is everything was sort of politically expedient. So they wanted something where there was an immediate effect and you know you had the yay or nay from voters very quickly. Um, and that's why a lot of the policies were based on demand suppression. You know, foreign buyer tax, double land transfer tax, you know, a whole host of quote unquote revenue tools and a whole bunch of sort of punitive barriers to entry into the real estate market. The reality is it hasn't helped in any regard. Um, and the only true solution to a demand-based problem is supply. And while, you know, in Toronto specifically, everyone sort of looks and says, well, where could we possibly grow? There's certainly opportunities and, and the same opportunities exist really across the country um, yep. for, you know, gentle intensification, sort of that missing middle type housing bridging between sort of condo and single family home. Um, but it is going to take a, an approach that incentivizes conversions to plexes or streamlines 
the overall process, cuts the red tape, and provides some security that, you know, this won't take three years um, to get approval for, you know, a small conversion. Because at that point, the fundamentals dollar-wise don't work. Can we get over some of the polarization that goes on, Kev, that, that, that I think it really pollutes this, this this discussion, that everybody who wants to see an increase in supply is not just a money-grubbing developer, and everybody who wants to see smart growth is not just a tree hugger that doesn't care about, about economic growth. Uh, you know, as long as those, those two views are there, and they are, uh, and people who cling to those are simply holding up the process here. And it, it, the, the, the reality is it's not going to be one or the other. It's got to be a blend of, of what's going to happen going forward here, doesn't it? Well, I think there has to be a collective understanding that ultimately we all are in this together. And, you know, we need really feedback and we need discussion from both sides. I think, you know, th- those polarizing perspectives um, certainly create a lot of discourse, which... The discourse itself is positive um, because I think we get to more balanced solutions if that's really the sort of focus. But, you know, I think it's also looking at the reality of things from a a development perspective. If you look at where most money is being made in development projects today, it's really on long-term land holds. So, you know, land that was purchased many, many years ago at, at vastly different price points And, you know, having the ability to carry that land through what is a very lengthy rezoning process and what have you, um, that's really where developers have made the vast majority of the profit. But there's also been a huge risk. So, you know, large risk, there's some element of reward for sure. Um, But if you also look at the development side, and these are the things that don't get discussed as frequently. Over $100,000 of the cost of every unit of new construction is government taxes, charges, and fees. So if you look at who's getting sort of rich off of this whole development boom, it's the government. And that's also going to be an important conversation to have on a go-forward basis is if real estate is not going to be the cash cow of cities and all of these sort of additional revenue tools are creating massive barriers to the creation of supply. How are cities going to fund their operations and be part of the supply conversation? Um, So there's a lot of challenge ahead, certainly. But I think in terms of the committee that's been assembled, it's a broad base of individuals who, you know, really are leaders in their, their individual fields. And it's looked at, it's assembled people who have looked at this issue in other parts of the country and have come up with unique options or opportunities. So I'm certainly very hopeful um, that there will be a broad base of recommendations brought forward. The question will be implementation and support. Exactly. And that's, excuse me, that's where that coordination comes in with all three levels of government. And your point's well taken, by the way, but about the taxation and the punitive measure of this. And uh, frankly, a certain naivety on behalf of the federal government to assume that when they even impose these things, and you've heard 
the Romero's I have. I mean, they were even talking about a capital gains tax on primary residences. I don't think they're going to go down that road, but it was somebody brought that up at the table. That just gets passed on to the consumer. It, it's, it's not punitive. It's not stopping what's going on here. It's just making it less affordable for people. So uh, you're right. We've all got to lay our cards on the table here, and that includes the federal government and the province and municipal governments to, to make sure that something's going to happen here. I, I share your, your, your optimism. I think something's got to be done here. The government's aware of this. Uh, you know, I was on city council way back in the day, uh, you know, around the, the turn of the century here, where governments, both federal <laughs> and provincial, it's just that housing, that's, that's a municipal issue. We're not even going to touch that. We're not going to fund that. They're smarter than that now, I hope. And the fact that they're at the table right now has got to be encouraging, I would think, Kevin. Uh, I definitely think it is. And, you know, I think the, the key conversation for all levels of government to have really is there's one citizen, there's one sort of voter, there's one citizen, there's one wallet. So the federal government's citizen is the same as the provincial and same as the municipal. And I think as soon as they sort of realize that, you know, collective action is going to be the key to solving this problem. And, you know, they're all ultimately working for the same person or same people. Um, that'll go a long way because it, it really is that coordination among all levels. The federal government, certainly uh, through the federal election, it, it became a key talking point. And, you know, they brought forward some valuable um, recommendations around their plan to build additional housing units. But none of that's going to happen unless there's engagement at the municipal level. So, exactly. you know, hopefully this will be a catalyst for greater interaction and engagement between levels of government. Because I think a, a lot of problems in various areas certainly could be resolved based on more coordinated action. Um, but certainly all three levels recognize there is something that needs to be done immediately around housing. And I think that's really the most positive news we've had in a long time. I think so, too. Certainly more to come on this in the weeks ahead on this uh, and further conversations, I'm sure. Kevin, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Take care. Kevin Krieger, who is the president of the Toronto Region Real Estate Board, feeling optimistic about finding some solutions from government about this housing crisis. And it is a crisis at this stage. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The government yesterday uh, is advising against non-essential travel outside of Canada. Health Minister Jean-Yves Ducroix uh, said the rapid spread of the Omicron variant is making them fear the worst. To those who were planning to travel, I say very clearly, now is not the time to travel. Uh, there are those that might take exception to the minister's comments and, uh, and his way of thinking there. We're heading into the holiday season. Uh, some people already have booked sun destinations. And uh, there's going to be some pushback on this. To talk about this, please do welcome back to the program, Abigail Beeman. Abigail, of course, is the Ottawa correspondent for Global News. Uh, Abigail, great to have you back on the show today. A, a lot of the people, after they heard the announcement from the federal government yesterday, were figuring this is like a day late and a dollar short. Uh, this Omicron is on every continent except Antarctica right now. Why a travel advisory? What are you hearing? Well, 
That's right. And, and I'm certainly hearing what you're hearing from people who are frustrated and uh, want to understand more about the rationale. And the government really hasn't been all that clear. What they're saying is that this is to protect Canadians from getting sick or getting stuck overseas uh, as cases are rising around the globe. Uh, but at the same time, in that news conference that you played a clip from, uh, Duclos said that he acknowledged this was a, quote, drastic move, but said that it's important so as not to overload our hospital and healthcare systems. So I asked him about that because, as you know, there's uh, stringent testing measures in place for anybody returning to this country. Uh, they have to get a PCR test within 72 hours of arrival. Then there's another test at the border and they have to isolate until that result comes back unless of course you're coming from the United States which is a different story uh, but anyway I asked Duclos you know wh what is the rationale here if you're saying that what evidence does the government have that an advisory against leaving the country is going to stop hospitals and healthcare systems in the country from becoming overwhelmed with all these measures that are in place he didn't answer me at all he just went right back to Canadians getting stuck abroad which is not you know what I had asked him so a lot of frustration uh, from all these Canadians that you mentioned who, who made the uh, who made their travel plans when there was not an advisory in place and now December 15th are being told, oh wait, uh, no, you, you shouldn't be traveling. I heard the Prime Minister's comments about it too, Abigail. You're right, it was a head-scratcher. You know, we don't want people to get stuck overseas. Well, that's really up to the jurisdiction in which they're in. I mean, you know, the, we, we you've heard the debate. You've been reporting on the debate about, uh, you know, Canadian athletes going to the uh, Beijing Olympics. And, well, what if they have to be quarantined? They may have to stay there for four to five weeks. That's that's not on Canada, is it? That's on the, the uh, campus. So I, I can't understand the, the connection the Prime Minister's trying to make there. Well, you know, I, you will remember that in the be very beginning of all of this, back in March of 2020, when borders were being shut down and there was panic and nobody knew what was going on, there was a huge effort by Canada to get Canadians home from all these places where they were stranded. Yeah. And Canada was organizing flights. Uh, it's a huge, uh, huge mission. It's cost, it's resources that they're, they have said since, you know, they're not prepared to do that again. And they want to give fair warning that if you get stuck, you're going to be stuck and there's not much that we can do to help them so that that part makes sense uh but people are making their own choices right and 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 nothing changed between a tuesday and wednesday in terms of somebody's plan to go to whatever x sun destination uh but that is on them and and what has changed now is because of this travel advisory people really need to talk to their insurance providers and that's a point that i'd like to get across because we spent hours uh on the phone yesterday trying to get through uh to insurance providers as you can imagine long wait times i know that's a frustration for many out they're trying to do the same thing. Uh, but we have spoken with travel agents, with insurance providers, with industry experts, and the messages are contradictory. So you may, you may not be covered, you may be impacted, you may not. So it's just really important that if you're somebody who is choosing to travel uh, or you have a trip and you're trying to make up your mind, get in touch with your own insurance provider and make sure that if you want to be covered for COVID or for anything else, make sure that that advisory isn't impacting the coverage that you have. And, and as you mentioned, not everybody is going to adhere to this. I mean, even Aaron O'Toole yesterday basically said nothing new here. Uh, this is the same story that they talked about in November. And he's, I guess, basically uh, given his blessing to any MPs of, in his caucus. You want to go south? You want to travel? Knock yourself out. Um, yeah, we saw that. Uh, we saw that story. I haven't followed up with the Conservative Caucus directly to get that statement ourselves, but uh, they 
put out a statement to, to other media uh, saying that uh, exactly what you just said that uh, that uh, the, you know there's no there's no official ban in place or there's no law against traveling. Uh, you can continue with your travel plans. As I said, I have not independently uh, reported that, but other media are reporting that, and also that uh, that's not the same. That's not the case for the NDP or the Liberals who are asking their caucus to stay home, like they're telling Canadians. Abigail, as you were listening to the minister yesterday, and, and as I say, we're kind of getting mixed messages because, like you say, in another section of town, the prime minister was also commenting about some of this stuff too. Uh, and there were some wires crossed of some of the messaging we were getting. But they also talked about mandatory quarantining for people coming into the country right now. Did they explain exactly what that meant? Because, I mean, they've tried this before, and it was a real dog's breakfast. And they eventually abandoned it and said, forget about it. Uh, we're leaving you you know, to your, your, your goodwill to do it and just make sure that you don't go out any place. And the stuff about sticking people in hotels and everything, they're, they're not planning on going down that road again, are they? Nothing new at this point. Uh, and if, in case anybody needs a refresher, right now the only people who have to go to a quarantine facility are Canadians returning from one of the 10 African nations where there's currently a ban uh, on foreign nationals entering the country. If a Canadian is returning from one of those countries, they need to wait for their uh, quarantine results uh, in a quarantine hotel. Uh, but other than that, the only quarantines that are happening is if you, re- if anybody, any Canadian returns from a trip abroad, as it stands right now, you have to take a test upon arrival at the border except for the united states right now and you have to isolate or quarantine until that test comes back but you can do that at your house provided you know you have a suitable quarantine uh, arrangement and of course you need to use arrive can and all those other things which we which anybody traveling should definitely be familiar with but arrive can and have a quarantine plan uh, in place uh, i do want to mention that uh, while they while nobody discussed quarantine hotels yesterday duclo and the prime minister both said that something else was coming on arrival testing. And of course, it it makes sense why your mind went there, because that's what was in place before. Absolutely nothing mentioned about a quarantine hotel yesterday, but the Prime Minister basically said that there there might be more barriers involving testing to people coming home. So I'm not going to speculate as to what that might be, but we all remember when the quarantine rule was two weeks after you came home, when the Prime Minister went to the G7 and I was with him as part of the press corps. That's what we all had to do, was quarantine upon arrival, quarantine in a hotel and then and then a two-week quarantine in our in our houses so we'll see if there's anything else you know i can understand why a lot of canadians are frustrated this close to christmas and the government's still saying hey something else is coming but we're not going to tell you exactly what it is at, at this moment um, so understandable why there's a lot of confusion up in the air well you got a busy day ahead of you and we'll be watching for your reporting on global national 6 30 tonight of course uh just to get the latest on this abigail as always thanks so much for this really appreciate it thank you Take care. Abigail Beeman, Ottawa correspondent for Global News. And and like I say, this is a very fluid story about what's been happening here. And uh, there could well be more announcements about that. Uh, In other news, as they say in the business, uh, the federal government has signed a $51 million deal to slash childcare fees and add 300 new spaces in the Northwest Territories. Uh, The Prime Minister uh, and others made the announcement uh, just the other day. And uh, they say this is one more step toward the $10 a day decade that they've been talking about. We have reached an agreement today that will have a huge impact on families across the territory. By this coming March, childcare fees will be cut in half for families across the Northwest Territories. And within five years, there'll be an average of $10 a day. Which is what they talked about during the election campaign and uh, more and more provinces and territories are buying into it. Uh, Northwest Territories yesterday, uh, New Brunswick this week. Uh, Of course, earlier it was uh, Alberta who signed on after the election. 
Uh, what's going on here in Ontario? Well, uh, I'd like to get an update on that. And so I'm pleased to welcome back to the program, Karina Gold, who is the not just the MP for Burlington, but also the Federal Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. And this uh, daycare program, of course, is uh, in her portfolio and on her desk, I'm sure, uh, open just about every day now. Uh, Minister, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, glad to be here, Bill. You're picking these off one by one. We uh, reported last week that, well, New Brunswick hasn't even signed on, Northwest Territories, but you had mentioned to us that there were some logistics involved with a couple of these things, and they've both come into the fold right now. That's a, that's, that's it's a pretty good indicator right now. By my count, uh, a number of jurisdictions, uh, Ontario has yet to do this, uh, but everybody else in the country seems to think this is a pretty good deal. Yeah, so, I mean, with... Uh New Brunswick and Northwest Territory signing agreements this week, um, it means that Ontario is the only province not to have an agreement uh, with the federal government. Uh, Nunavut uh, is the only territory, but um, Nunavut uh, is is very much uh, excited to sign an agreement. They recently had an election and they have to go through some consultations with their Inuit population. So we feel very confident that we're going to sign with uh, Nunavut early in the new year. What's the status? I, I know you don't want to negotiate in public, uh, Karina, but what's the status with Ontario right now? Are, are you talking? Are you guys at the table? Yes. So we are having very um, intensive conversations with Ontario right now. So, uh, for example, this week, officials, uh, federal and provincial officials have been sitting down every day uh, to talk um, about the numbers and to go through some of the details. So um, certainly more advanced than the last time we spoke. Are you confident that something's going to be happening here sooner than later? Um, I, you know, I, I have, I'm optimistic. Um, I think that there is a political will and good faith on both sides. Um, I'm hoping for sooner rather than later. Uh, I couldn't give you a timeline because there's still lots of work that needs to happen, but uh, we are having good conversations um, and I remain in close contact uh, with Minister Lecce here in Ontario. Um, look, Bill, my, my objective is to make sure that there's a good agreement for families in Ontario um, and to make sure that those federal objectives are met. As you're going through the process here, uh, and I'm just basing this on, on some of the comments we've heard from Mr. Lecce when he's been on the program and some of the stuff the Premier said, it, it sounds as if, well, they want, a, they want a, a modified deal here because Ontario's different from most of the other, if not all of the other provinces. That's the gist of what they seem to be saying, at least publicly anyway. Uh, but I'm getting the sense as one of these, each and one of these announcements are made, the, the latest ones, of course, being New Brunswick and the Northwest Territories, uh, it's essentially the same deal. Uh, and you sign on. There could be some tweaking here and there, but it's, it's not as if you've signed 10 different deals here for 10 different provinces. This, this is the package. Is that the essence of, of how the negotiations should be going? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment to make, Bill. I mean, really, you know, we have, um, you know, four main objectives when it comes to these agreements that are in all of them, right? The first is that there's a 50% reduction in fees by the end of 2022. The second is that there is a plan um, and a way to get to $10 a day on average by 25, 26 for, for families. Um, the third is that we increase the number of spaces available um, because we know that as uh, fees go down, the demand will go up. And then the fourth is really making sure that there are supports in place for early childhood educators and workforce development. And so uh, every province and territory is a little bit different. So every agreement will be a little bit different. But 
each of the agreements um, are reflective of those four priorities, and that would be the case for Ontario as well. So we recognize that, you know, there are differences across the country, and so there will be, you know, slightly different ways of maybe getting to those objectives or, or recognizing, um, you know, some of the unique attributes. So, for example, in, in New Brunswick, um, you know, they have two separate school systems, an English school system and a French school system. So, you know, we work that into the agreement. In the Northwest Territories, they have uh, unique infrastructure challenges because there are some communities that are very remote where there is no child care available now. So, you know, we take those factors into account, um, but we always maintain kind of our core principles and objectives to deliver for families. I, I, I don't want to suggest there's an advantage to Ontario being last here, but uh, a lot of the challenges you just talked about here, I guess Ontario is really kind of a, a microcosm of all of those things, don't you? We have remote areas, of course, in the northern part of the province, uh, unique, uh, you know, boards of education here, education systems. Uh, but at least as you sit down with Mr. Lecce or Minister Lecce and, and his staff, uh, you can see, yeah, we already dealt with this. Uh, here's how we deal with this. In other words, that you've, you've developed those policies for those areas already. Uh, I would think it's going to be easier to check a lot of those boxes then. Well, look, I mean, I think we've already demonstrated very clearly that we've been able to make, um, you know, good agreements for families in 11 jurisdictions across the country. Um, you know, I'm from Ontario. I want to ensure that families in Ontario also, you know, are able to um, benefit from this federal program. What's even more, I'm a mom with a kid in daycare, right? So, for me, there is um, a really, you know, big imperative to getting this right in Ontario. Um, and I, I know that we can do that. Um, and so I, you know, I'm so committed to getting this done um, and to working with the Ontario government, but to make sure that Ontario children and families are at the heart of this agreement. Just on a timing base, uh, we're heading in towards the Christmas break for both the Ontario legislature and certainly for, uh, for the parliament as well. Uh, do these negotiations carry on or, or do you hit the pause button until early in the new year? In other words, if there's no deal by, say, the end of this week, can we anticipate it's not going to be happening until sometime in January? Yeah, I don't I don't think there will be an announcement, um, you know, between Christmas and New Year's. But that doesn't mean that the work will stop. I think Minister Lecce and I agreed that we might take uh, the 24th and the 25th uh, off for a bit of a, a break with uh, family if we're able to, to meet with them. But um, but the, the conversations will will continue. Um, you know, we're we're very we're we're very keen to get this um, to get this done for families in Ontario. Well, so are Ontario families keen to see that happening too. Uh, Minister, good luck with this. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and giving us kind of update on this. I really appreciate it. Oh, always my pleasure. Thanks for your interest, Bill. You betcha. Take care. Karina Gold, of course, the MP for Burlington and also uh, the Federal Minister for Families, Children and Social Development uh, with two more, well, a province and a territory signing on to the deal in Ontario. Well, talks are continuing. Hopefully that's going to be fruitful sooner than later. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.